0: Welcome back, listeners. You are listening to Who Knew We Didn't, the podcast where we talk about psychology, try to learn some more about the scientific studies behind the topics we cover, and make sense of them for our everyday lives. And my name is Megan, and my partner in podcast here is... Marta! Marta! I have a note already. Oh, already? So this episode is about... Memory.
1: And I just remembered that in our last episode, I forgot to give an intro of what our podcast is about. I was like, hey, by the way, who knew we didn't? My name is Marta Smegan, and today's topic, and
0: I didn't even talk about who we are. Well, you you gave our names, but not what we do. Well, what are you going to do? You can't change the past, but
1: retroactively, two weeks ago, we were still a podcast about psychology.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we were then. We are as well today. And uh, like we mentioned, today we're going to be talking about the psychology of memory, memory. and why we remember things and maybe also a little bit about why we forget them. (laughs) Uh, What is memory? It is the faculty of the mind by which information is encoded, stored and retrieved. Uh, It is vital to our experiences and it's related to the limbic system. It's the retention of information over time for the purpose of influencing future action. If we weren't able to build memories, we would not be able to do things like develop languages or relationships or even develop a personal identity. So memory is uh, pretty key. Uh, It is also a very active area of study today. And there are a few theories there are a few different types of memory there are a few theories that guide our understanding of the functions of the human memory and that's what we want to bring to you today so I think Marta you're going to start us off with the types of memory mm-hmm. awesome so why don't you why don't you go ahead
1: mm-hmm I will. Okay. <laughs> so um, there are different types of memory. The two main groupings of memory, Megan, are long-term memory and short-term memory. You which, don't say. Yeah. Mm. Um, short, long-term memory is a system for storing, managing, and retrieving information. In the long term, Uh, short term memory is closely related to working memory, but it's not necessarily the same thing. It is a very short time you keep something in your mind before either dismissing it or deciding that it's important enough to be transferred into long term memory. Hmm, Cool. So within long term memory and short term memory, there are different types of memory within these categories so we're going to dive even deeper and even deeper and my bullet points have subpoints and then further subpoints for so oh get, man get ready for a journey <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready so within long-term memory there is explicit memory and implicit memory and of the two explicit and imp- implicit there are different types so to recap there's long-term memory explicit memory and then within explicit memory there's episodic and semantic.
0: Okay. So we're going
1: oh my! down to little. So just to talk about explicit memory first, um, does, explicit memory is also called declarative memory. It requires conscious thought and was what most people have in mind when they're thinking about memory. So when you're talking to just any person on the street about memory, don't know why you would, but uh, if you are, then that's what people have in mind with memory. Like it's the recall. It's the conscious like, Oh, let me see if I remember that kind of memory. Um, so, for example, you remember who came to dinner last night, or you name animals that live in the rainforest. It's also often associative, so your brain links memories together. So, if somebody says car, then you your brain brings up a list of things that you think when you think car, like oh, I was shopping for cars, so you're thinking about Auto Trader, or you think about carburetors or road trips with your families or whatever. So, or for example, for us, we think about recording in a, recording a podcast that we do. So that's explicit memory. Um, of explicit memory, there's two types of explicit. There's episodic and semantic. Um, episodic memory is often autobiographical, so it provides us a crucial record of our personal experiences. So we re- remember specific episodes or like events that happened in our lives. So if you think of your life as like a series of snapshots, if you remember a few snapshots together, that's an episode. That you remember, and most commonly, you're remembering episodes that you were part of. So, like, I was watching a movie, or I was with this person, or whatever. Emotions also play a huge factor in how well we remember these kinds of memories. So if something was particularly traumatic or emotionally involved, then we remember it more so. Like, for example, the death of a loved one or a wedding or the birth of a child or something like that. Uh, We're more likely to remember that. And this form of memory appears to be centered in the hippocampus with considerable help from the cerebral cortex. It looked like you were going to say something.
0: I was. uh, I remember making a joke a while back about... I was going to say that hippo named Campus, but then I was like, no, it was a hippo named Thalamus. (laughs) Oh. But, you know, my memory, I guess, is a little fuzzy on that episode of my life. (laughs) Um, Next up, under,
1: again, long term explicit. Then there's, within explicit, there's, uh, sorry, semantic as well. And so this accounts for our textbook learning or general knowledge about the world, such as zebras are striped or Paris is a major city in France. Scientists aren't really sure where this happens in the brain, apparently, or according to the resource that I found. Um, But this is better sustained over time than episodic memory, which is interesting because our memories in general, like, tend to warp. Over time, so something that you like in experiments where they make somebody recall something right away, and then they make them recall it a week later, a month later, etc. Semantic memory, so like facts or textbook learning, general knowledge memory, retains its shape much better than episodic memory. It's so like what happened when,
0: etc. Interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, under the ex, uh, under the long term memory umbrella, so coming out of explicit, there's also implicit memory. Um, And implicit memory is a major form of long-term memory that does not require conscious thought. So it's not conscious recall. It allows you to do things by rote. So this is also called non-declarative memory. It isn't always easy to verbalize since it flows in our actions. So for example, if you know the pin pad or pin code to enter a security system or like your phone number or my email address or something like that, it's things that like your body can do but it's tough to recall. That's why, like, some people, when they're teaching their kids how to do things, they're like, oh, wait, how do I do things?
0: Uh, like, um, uh, th- a good example of that is uh, Taylor's dad was teaching him how to drive standard, mm-hmm. and he, like, Taylor was in the driver's seat, and his dad was like... Oh wait like i've been driving standard my entire life and he like realized all of a sudden like he's a great driver but he realized all of a sudden he couldn't like articulate mm -hmm. how to drive standard
1: yeah like for me for example when i'm driving standard and i need to downshift or i need to like shift up like i don't think about where my hand is going i just think like i don't i actually don't even really think anymore but if i'm like oh i need more power i'll downshift or if like I'm going too slow or whatever, or like I know when I can skip gears or whatever, but like, I don't think about it. And if I'm thinking about driving, I'm actually more likely to screw it up yeah. and like, stall my car. Yeah. So implicit memory. Um, so that there are two types of implicit memory again because I told you guys that we're going really deep into these things and then come back out so uh, of implicit there's procedural and priming memory procedural enables us to carry out commonly learned tasks without consciously thinking about them riding a bike, tying a shoe, driving standard, walking <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> And what's interesting is that this is probably a different part of your brain than episodic memory. So like memories about yourself or whatever, because people who suffer from amnesia can still tie their shoelaces.
0: Very interesting.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's different parts. So there's not just like a memory ball in your brain. Like different parts of your brain are involved in memory of different things. Huh. Mm hmm. Um, And then, so of implicit memory, the ones that you don't think about, there's also priming. So you are primed by your experience. And if you're thinking right now about priming and advertising this is exactly where my mind went to so if you guys are still writing down your questions that you have while we're talking write down this question marta what does memory and advertising have to do or what is pr- like how is psychology tied to advertising i'd love to talk about that um but yeah so but maybe in its
0: own episode oh, <laughs> for sure not today yeah like last week's episode memory is like a huge field of study and fucking massive yeah we're doing like kind of like an overview of memory today but i think uh, we would both like to go into more like specific focused areas when we have this base knowledge yeah
1: Yeah. so again in long term within implicit memory there's priming so you're primed by your experiences if you hear something very recently or more times than another thing you're primed to recall it more quickly um and there is um an old, a researcher, Sir Francis Galton, in the nineteenth century, he was one of the, like the first pioneers or like thinkers in memory. He compared this to your brain or like your neural networks being a road that's well well worn. So if it's something that's used more often, it's well worn, and so it's easier to travel down. That sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you're primed by your experience. If you hear something more recently or more often, you recall it more quickly. So. This is what advertisements target when you are driving and you see a billboard once or twice and then you hear it on the radio and then you see a commercial on TV or like it's one of those YouTube autoplay ads. This is trying to prime you. So when you go to the supermarket, there is one thing that you see that's more familiar because Mm. you've seen it so many times. Mm. So, for example, I drove past a billboard of tuna that doesn't require draining like no drain tuna or whatever the heck it's called and I'm like you know what I need that in my life because first of all tuna water sucks it stinks so bad and like I just want to open my can of tuna and use it right away I don't want to have to drain it (laughs) let me live my life tuna (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah so uh related to this if you're for example if you're asked to name an American city with the letters ch what do you think of
0: Massachusetts
1: oh shoot I meant starting with the letter C oh
0: (laughs) funny that I didn't pick one that started with the letter I mean you're clearly primed um
1: sorry did you say city or state
0: city a city Chattanooga
1: for fuck's sake Megan you're breaking this (laughs) So, Megan was supposed to say Chicago. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It doesn't... It ch- no, I'm okay. looking for a chess sound, Marta. Chicago. Uh, of and course
0: Chicago. Da Chicago. So,
1: Megan answered Chicago and... <laughs> <laughs> that's because it's a big city and we're more primed to think of Chicago um, rather than Charlotte or Charleston.
0: Or Chattanooga. Or Chattanooga. <laughs> um... I hope that's a fucking place. I don't even know right I now. I thought it was Canada. No, Chattanooga. I'm googling it.
1: So it's a city in Tennessee.
0: Absolutely is. <laughs> Perfect. And it's fucking small, Megan. <laughs> I think it's the the sound of it is probably why I would remember it. Like it's a little bit. It's it's a more unique. unique. Well, it's the fourth most populous city in Tennessee. Well, so, there you go, Marta. But there's 50 states. <laughs> anyway. And that's the city that I thought of. So Megan said Chicago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, next up in priming, the neural pathways in your brain representing things that we've experienced more often are uh, usually more salient than those for things which we have fewer experiences. Unless you're in a very creative, like, neural disassociative mood like Megan is in today. Yeah. and you want to break things.
0: I've also never been to Chicago, so it's not like necessarily my first I thought. I
1: so, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's two main groupings of memory. I mentioned we talked about long-term now for quite a while. I talked about explicit, implicit, et cetera. Uh, with, and then there's short-term memory. So short-term memory, as I mentioned, is closely related to working memory. And this article that I read about it just like liked similes and metaphors so they say it is like a receptionist for your brain so you store information temporarily and determine if it's to be dismissed or transferred into long term
0: i bet its name is linda
1: (laughs) (laughs) hi brain inbox (laughs) linda speaking (laughs) brain box can you hold please (laughs) linda running on very little sleep um (laughs)
0: I hope you guys find these funny. (laughs) I want to do like a... Like, the thalamus will see you now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Megan's pressing like an imaginary button on the lap, too. So, receptionist for your brain named Linda where you store information temporarily to determine if it's to be dismissed or whatever, it, it's actually helping you right now by holding on to the beginning of a sentence until you hear the end of the sentence so that you can make sense of the sentence altogether. That was actually
0: a tongue twister. That was a bit of a tongue twister. You handled it well. I, I think I stuttered. Uh, but anyway,
1: <laughs> so
0: I mentioned that there's a... Um,
1: discrimination between working memory and short-term memory working memory is a newer concept than short-term memory so it's kind of like a refined thought about it Mm -hmm. um and the two terms are sometimes used interchangeably but i don't know if this is uh if that's accurate so working memory emphasizes the brain's manipulation of information that it receives so for example using it storing it so on and this could be why teachers ask us to use concepts we learn in a sentence and then talk about it and then explain it and then like draw it or whatever so we're asked to like repeat things in certain different like several different ways so that we work with it more get Mm -hmm. more experience with it Um, whereas short-term memory is more of a passive concept it's not something that we actively use so it's something that like it's information you learn while you're reading a textbook and you may or may not retain it you're not actually like reading the information and then answering a question about it you're just reading the information it sits in there and then like subconsciously your brain determines if it's to be put in long term long term memory whereas work, working memory is more like a scratch pad for the brain so you put things down for as long as you need to in order to just use it so like somebody's name like the way that Linda would write down somebody's name and phone number <laughs> So uh, something interesting that I wanted to point out with short term versus working memory, uh, as we grow older, the amount of time our short term memory can store things grows shorter. So it starts to shorten as we grow old. And if you guys remember from our sleep episode a few weeks back, there also is you start to sleep less when you grow old so that hurts your long-term memory so just in general aging is bad for memory um it makes us more likely to have trouble keeping up with certain tasks as well so for example um people who are on the phone and they're going through like an automatic banking phone menu or Mm -hmm. whatever uh when it says like press this to do this or press that to do that like you have to listen to all the options and remember the one that you wanted and as you get older people perform less well on that task Mm. but i don't know how i could perform even worse at phone trees (laughs) um and then that's that's it for short-term memory just working memory versus uh short-term memory a little bit and how age influences our short-term memory but then i have some facts about the various areas or it's very specific types of memory so i give you guys a description and then now i have some facts about some of them yeah um First up is long-term memory. So as I mentioned, as I touched upon earlier, it isn't static. Um, You do not imprint a memory and then leave it as if it's untouched. You revise it over time, perhaps merging it with another memory, incorporating it to what others tell you about the memory, and um, changing it so that it matches your current situation. Uh, And your memories are not constant and they're not necessarily reliable. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to touch upon this in our criminal profiling episode but it wasn't entirely relevant.
0: It's so funny. Like, I touched on this a little bit. We're going to probably oh circle back to this in the theory section but go ahead. Eyewitness testimony? Yeah. Yes.
1: Okay. I'll, I'll leave it but like you guys know where this is going.
0: <laughs> then we'll come back
1: to this. Yeah. Um, and then also the process of storing long-term memories is spread throughout multiple regions of your brain so it's not necessarily just one area and how well you remember Remember, something can depend on how clearly your senses take it in and not necessarily on how good your memory is. So sometimes if a patient reports, oh, I'm having trouble with memory, it's not actually their memory at all. It's a problem with their senses. Oh,
0: wow. Mm -hmm.
1: So, for example, if your brain records what you hear, see, feel, taste with perfect precision, you're better able to recall it later. If it sounds muffled or if it doesn't sound very clear, you're not going to be as able to recall it because it wasn't recorded very well. Hmm. If you think about it like... For example, we're recording our podcast, and then I edit it, and I send you an edited version, and then you edit it again and send it back to me, the file keeps getting corrupted, corrupted, corrupted. And so if we recorded a great quality podcast in the beginning, it'll still sound okay after being like edited a few times. But if we recorded a really shitty quality podcast, and then we edit it a couple times, it keeps getting corrupted. By the end, we have no clue what it was. Huh. Yeah.
0: Um, Good analogy.
1: No, thank you. I literally just made it up. (laughs) (laughs) um the so the brain might not be able to record sensory information clearly or not be able to remember sensory information clearly so think again about how memory decline is linked to aging think of the other things that decline as you age your senses like your hearing and your sight so when people are complaining about memory it's because they can't hear here's looking at you dad when you don't remember what i tell you (laughs) let's get you a hearing aid yeah um after that subtle jab at my dad we're going to move into autobiographical memory so as i mentioned before sir francis galton was one of the first pioneers in memory in the 19th century um and he tested his memory with this test where he had four keywords that he would repeat during various situations and throughout this test he found that it's actually like later on when he was recalling the situations where he spoke these four keywords, he found that it's very difficult to pinpoint when events that you remember have occurred so like specific timing is tough to remember um and also that your brain tends to produce the same associations over and over again quite reliably so again if we're talking about that neural pathways are roadways of our minds the more you use it the more um deeply worn the ruts are yeah in, later on, in the 1970s, researchers modified Galton's method to test the distribution of memories over time, and they found that college students that were tested—so the typical subset of yeah. people that are tested in every single psychological study—were um, <laughs> more likely to, were much more able to recall recent memories and had fewer older ones. And so, this supports the power law of forgetting. So, we think that the more recent the memory is, the more likely we are to. Remember it. And then the further away the memory is, like in time, we mm-hmm. forget it. But what they found in a study of middle age and older adult participants was that once you get later on in life, you tend to have a bumpy roller coaster of autobiographical memories. So, for example, to begin the roller coaster, you have childhood amnesia. So, the first five years of your life, you don't really have a good memory of it. Most people who say that they do have a good memory of it, those are created memories. Um, and we don't actually we're not actually able to differentiate between memories that we create uh, like invent megan is smiling knowingly i should pull back
0: no no i i just i feel like i remember several things and i've like talked to some of my family about them and they've been like no that didn't happen but i also remember several things that like my family will um verify, verify. yeah and i'm quite sure That I don't actually remember them. Yeah. I've just heard the story enough that I know I, and I know I was there that I've like created the memory for myself.
1: Yeah. And this goes back to the thing I said earlier that your memories are not static. Like Mm -hmm, you change them. mm -hmm. You change them every time you recall them. Um, so, yeah, we have five-year amnesia in childhood amnesia. Uh, then what the researchers ex- expected to see is that we have, like, very few memories up until a sharp bump of recent, recent memories. So, like, when you're in your middle or older age, you have, like, very few memories throughout your life and then a bump like an increase in the most recent ones, what they didn't expect was another bump in the roller coaster of memories from adolescence and young adulthood. They theorized that this could be because these are the formative years, and there are a lot of firsts happening in these years, but you have quite a bit more memories retained from adolescence and young adulthood than you do, for example, in other times if you're like, like, for example, when you're in your 30s or yeah. 40s or something like yeah. that.
0: when the years start to blend together. <laughs> Sounds depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it necessarily no, in don't. a depressing way, just sort of in a that's life sort of way, I guess.
1: Yeah. And then unlike other types of memory, the availability of large numbers of autobiographical memory from the bump appears to remain constant constant for healthy adults well into their 90s. So this little roller coaster with that unexpected bump of um, adolescence and young adulthood mm-hmm. tends to retain those memories even when you're old wow. as shit. Yeah. So...
0: That's really cool. Make good memories when you're young, folks.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Or just, like, try to remember the memories of when you're older that were good, if your young ones aren't so good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And then, finally, do you guys remember our episode about sleep? Megan, do you remember? I remember it. I remember it. It
0: wasn't that long ago. No,
1: exactly. (laughs) And also, we slept on it. Well, (laughs) we're about to get into it again, because I found quite a bit again oh about sleep so um i'm not gonna go too far deep into it but um so to, to get started, not all researchers agree on sleep's role in memory consolidation, but the research is mounting. So this is a very fashionable topic right now, like sleep and memory, because they're both f- like, for example, Alzheimer's re- uh, research is very fashionable right now, and sleep also is quite fashionable. Uh, so to just give you guys a brief overview of sleep, if you didn't listen to our sleep episode, there are two broad categories of sleep, um, and they have different Brain wave patterns. So there's deep sleep, so non REM, non rapid eye movement, and then there's REM sleep. Deep sleep is paired with uh, the slowest rhythm of your brain waves, which is called delta waves. And then REM sleep is associated with dreaming and bursts of rapid eye movement, that sort of thing. So Both REM and non-REM are critical for cognitive functioning, as we already know from our sleep episode. Non-REM can be important for declarative memory, so our ability to recall fact-based information, which we might be tested on in school. And so if you think about it this way, that's the memory, that's the stuff that is stored in your short-term memory that you're not really thinking about. Mm -hmm. So it gets put in there, it just chills in there, you don't use it until it gets put into your long-term memory. Um, REM sleep is more for procedural memory. So in the sleep episode or dream episode, actually, I think Megan was talking about how she's frequently fighting like a ninja. And so we now know that Megan knows those procedures with her body. She is a ninja.
0: And if you need to make her. Well, I'm not a ninja. Do a front flip. But I can't do a front flip for sure. I don't even do them in my dreams. Uh-huh. But I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so for things like riding a bike or learning to dance, that kind of stuff happens in REM sleep, like putting it into committing it into long term memory. Um, and studies suggest that depriving people of the adequate amount of sleep hampers their ability to learn new information. Sleep deprivation reduces activity in the hippo name campus, which results in poor memory retention. <laughs> that made me so happy. hippo named campus yeah um we'll we'll have two hippos hippo named campus and the other one will name thalamus thalamus. and then a hippo named Marta. (laughs) (laughs) um um, and then sleeping after something has been learned appears to help the brain consolidate it so um they did a study on where participants were taught a five-fingered tapping pattern on a keyboard. The participants who slept remembered the pattern better than the participants who didn't. Um, and then linked to the study, Harvard researchers found that people who, s- who napped for 60 to 90 minutes after learning the finger tapping task performed better than people who did not nap. But that advantage is taken away once all participants have the chance for a full night's rest. Hmm. Yeah. So it's not like napping improves it and then you super boost it by sleeping. Everybody else just catches up. Ah. Uh. So, Yeah, don't, like, take naps in lectures as an excuse to try to memorize it better. (laughs) Um, Sleeping, age, and memory. So the ability to fall and stay asleep is often a casualty of aging. Uh, From the age 30 and on, adults tend to spend more hours lying awake waiting for the Sandman. By age 60, a full night's rest is cause for celebration. And this, again, is linked to memory. Like, I can't stress enough how important sleep seems to be for memory. Um, And then all is not lost there is there are ways to improve your memory or to like kind of just try to make sure that your memory is at peak performance so there's brain training like there's um there's this one website i found called brain hq and they seem to be quite evidence-based with like the little games and stuff that they make you learn Um, and then the games what i found in my research is that the type of game that you play Really, is closely tied to the type of memory that you want to improve. So, like number memorization games will help you memorize numbers. So just you like practice, ma- yeah, practice makes perfect. Or like recall of music will help you in music. That sort of thing. So it's it's not like oh I'll memorize these numbers or like I'll play that memory card game very often and that'll improve my memory everywhere it'll improve that specific type of memory
0: interesting okay
1: yeah or at least that's what I found in my research but maybe maybe there's more general effects that I haven't seen Um, regular physical exercise we've already talked about how amazing exercise is for everything memory is not excluded from that list eat brain healthy foods so things high in amino acids that sort of thing Uh, and then be social which is something that was interesting so studies show people who maintain an active social life are typically Uh, healthier with regards to their brain health and their memory. Hmm. Yeah. So I also wanted to touch upon memory dysfunction, age, disease, and trauma-related dysfunction, but that's literally a whole nother episode. So if you guys are thinking about questions like, oh, I really want to know about more about Alzheimer's and memory. Same, but same. Yeah. But let us know that that's something that you're interested in. Yeah.
0: Or if you have like specific questions about Mm like Alzheimer's or like a, something like that let us know so that when we get to that topic we can try and answer them for you
1: yeah yeah or we even know that you guys want us to talk about that topic yeah word because maybe memory is not something that you want to dive deeper maybe you're into. like
0: let's forget about this
1: yeah you're like I'm not napping after this episode <laughs> yeah anyway so uh, tweet at us with hashtag WKWD I think that's the best way to get a hold of us or send us email e- send us an email uh, yeah. Whatever. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you guys that there's so much more that I could have covered, that I chose not to well, because I hate you. No,
0: I'm joking. Yeah. Well, and also like you. we only have a, a short amount of time to work with. Like, once again, we can't keep you here forever. So we uh, we're doing kind of like an overview episode today, and then we can we can dive into more specific topics when we know that that's what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that all you had for us today, Marta? CC um i will now i'm glad we had you do the types of memory first because as you were talking i was like oh this like gives such excellent like base information for what i'm going to talk about which is some theories of memory thanks it was your idea for me to do types
1: yeah well (laughs) i'm really glad that your idea that you like the plan (laughs) the plan that i created worked worked perfectly (laughs) much better than any plan i've ever created anyway i'm going to stop interrupting
0: so the first theory of memory that I want to share with y'all is the multi-store model. It all like kind of feels like it starts with this, and a lot of the other theories I'm going to cover are reactions to this in one way or another. Um, so this was developed by Atkinson and Shiffrin in 1968. This model suggests that information exists in one of three states of memory: the sensory short term and long term stores. Oh, um, sensory. Mm. Shit. Mm.
1: I mentioned sensory as like part of Yeah. But it is like in some of the research I did, I totally I totally interrupted you again. But in some of the research that I did they did refer to sensory as separate. Yeah. So yeah.
0: um well and it's like like your memories pass through your senses, right? Yeah. True. So Um, and like, that's what this is. Like information passes from one stage to the next, the more we rehearse it in our minds. Um, but it can fade away if we don't pay enough attention to it. Um, like we talked about in our sense and perception series, information enters our memory from our senses, like our, eyes see something, our olfactory receptors smell coffee, um, or we hear music or whatever, what have you, um, the stream of information is held in the sensory memory store. And because it consists of a lot of data describing our surroundings, we only really need to remember a small portion of it. And as a result, most sensory information eventually breaks down and is forgotten after a short period of time. But having said that when a sight or a sound that we find interesting captures our attention and we contemplate this information, this is like rehearsal that leads to the data being, um, promoted to the short-term memory store where it will be held for a few hours or even days in case we need to access it again. And then the short-term memory gives us access to information that is salient to our current situation, but it's limited in its capacity. So we need to like further rehearse the information in the short-term memory to remember it for longer. Mm Um, and maybe that means that like we're recalling it and thinking about a past event or by thinking or writing or talking about it repeatedly or napping or, or, or napping and dreaming and rehearsing it. Um, so the rehearsal promotes the information to the long term memory store where like Atkinson and Schifrin believe it could survive for years or perhaps your whole lifetime. Um Key information regarding people that we've met, important life events, or other important facts make it through the sensory and short-term memory stores to reach the long-term memory. Mm-hmm. So that's the first theory. Um, the second theory is levels of processing, and this is by Fergus Craik and Robert Lockhart in 1972. All they, of these
1: are like pretty recent. 1968, yeah. 1972.
0: That's f- yeah. Um, so these guys were critical of the multi-store model that I mentioned a moment ago. So they proposed the levels of processing effect. And according to this model, memories don't reside in three stores. They, um, rather it's the, the strength of a memory that, uh, depends upon the quality of processing or rehearsal of a stimulus. So basically the more we think about something, the more long lasting the memory is going to be. So they distinguish between two types of processing that take place when we make an observation. Shallow processing, which is like considering the overall appearance or sound of something. And that generally leads to stimuli being forgotten. And this explains why we might walk past many different people in the street, on your morning commute but you might not remember any of your any of the faces you walked by uh by lunchtime did we talk about this on the podcast before about how
1: there's like a few people that stick out to me when i'm walking to work
0: i don't know if we've talked about this but i used to have that as well there were a few people that i was like i'm like i feel like if we didn't talk about it on the podcast i've talked to you about this before there was a guy that i like always saw and -hmm. then one time i saw him not on our commute and i was like (gasps) Why are you here? Yeah. Like, you're, you're, you're in my walk life. Why are you here in this other area that's not related to that walk life?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a girl with, like, a really small forehead. I don't know why I remember that. But she just, like, had a full head of hair. And it was just, like, whatever. Um, and so I'd see her every single day in the mornings. And then one day I didn't see her. And I was like, <gasps> and then the next day I saw her and she looked like shit. I was like, oh, she was sick. Oh. Poor thing. Poor thing. She rebounded. Good. She's still kicking? She Well, I'm not sure. I stopped that commute. Oh, well. We work in different places now.
0: Fingers crossed.
1: Um, oh, my God. Yes, yes. She's still kicking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, the other type of processing is called deep or semantic processing. Uh, this involves elaborate rehearsal, like focusing on a stimulus in a more considered way, like thinking about the meaning of a word or the consequences of an event, like Merely reading a news story involves pretty shallow processing, but thinking about the repercussions of that story or how it will affect other people, all of that sort of thing requires deep processing, and that will increase the likelihood that you'll memorize the details of that news story. Hmm. Um, So, Craik and Lockhart and another colleague of theirs named Endel Tolving tried to test this theory of the processing effect in 1975. They did this by showing participants 60 words and then had them answer a question that required either shallow processing or more elaborate rehearsal. When the original words were placed among a longer list of words... Participants who had conducted deeper processing of the original 60 words um, and their meanings were able to pick them out more efficiently than those who had processed just the appearance or the sound of the words. Mm mm-hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, the third theory is called the working memory model, and this is by Badley and Hitch in 1974. And again, it sort of started out as kind of a criticism of the multi-store model, or more that, like, the multi-store model couldn't really be the full story. It was, like, too simplistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they viewed the short-term memory, which, henceforth, I'm going to call STM, Um they viewed it as, um, an aspect to the multi-store memory. Um, yeah, as being oversimplistic anyway, they proposed this working memory model and this kind of like replaced the short-term memory aspect. Um, this model proposes two components, a visual spatial sketch pad, which is like our inner eye and an articulatory phonological loop which is like the inner ear. And can I just
1: commend you on
0: saying that? Hey, thanks. That was dope. A, that's a lot of syllables. Um, these focus on different types of sensory information. Both work independently of one another, but they're both regulated by a central switchboard and that collects and processes information from other components. It's like the it's like a computer processor. So they Poor said Linda. Or Linda, yeah. Um, so they said that um, this visual spatial sketchpad handles visual data, like observations of our surroundings, and spatial information, which is like understanding of an object's size and location in our environment in relation to ourselves. And that enables us to interact with objects, like pick something up. Um, but they also proposed that the visual spatial sketchpad enables a person to recall and consider visual information stored in long-term memory. Like when you try to recall a friend's face, your ability to visualize their appearance involves this visual spatial sketchpad. Um, another thing that they added, though I'm not sure how exactly it fits in with this whole visual spatial sketchpad business, um, auditory memory traces like the sounds and voices that we hear are normally forgotten but maybe rehearsed using our inner voice, which is a process that can strengthen our memory of a particular sound.
1: Hmm. Yeah. The, um, all of these series that you're mentioning to me, like it's bringing back memories of my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure that it was a cognitive psych course. And we spent like two or three weeks on memory. And there's so many cool fucking studies about memory and like so many things that you can test yourself on too. And turns out I have a really bad working memory, which we know because of ADHD. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, Well, I mean, it sucks.
0: Well, no, no. uh, Not (laughs) cool like yay. Cool cool, Cool, like interesting. Yeah. Sorry. Who knew? (laughs) Now, uh, the fourth theory that I want to suggest, which is actually turning back the clock a little bit here, it's Miller's magic number from 1956. So this is actually before the working memory model. A U.S. cognitive psychologist named George A. Miller also questioned the limits of short-term memory. Um, In a 1956 paper published in the Journal of Psychological Review, Miller cited the results of a previous memory experiment, concluding that people tend to only be able to hold on average, about seven chunks of information, plus or minus two, in the short-term memory before needing to further process them for longer storage. An example would be most people are able to remember a seven-digit phone number, but would struggle to remember a ten-digit phone number. And that led Miller to describe the number seven, plus or minus two, as a magical number in our understanding of memory. This is one of the studies that we learned about. Oh, in really? My undergrad, yeah. Oh, cool. Perfect segue. Um, <laughs> now. Having said that, it's funny. I thought this was funny because in 1956, maybe a seven-digit number made sense. But in North America now, all phone numbers are 10 digits long.
1: Yeah. And um, they used to, remember when we were younger, they used to not have area codes? I
0: remember when area codes became mandatory. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And every so often, you can still see like an old school, like somebody posted their number with no area code. And
0: you're like, are you 416 or 647,
1: bud? Or 905 or 289. <laughs>
0: Anyways, so Miller then asked if if it is 7 plus or minus 2, why are we able to remember a whole sentence that someone just said to us when that contains dozens of individual chunks of information in the form of letters. And he had a background in linguistics, so Miller understood that the brain is able to chunk items of information together and that these chunks count towards this seven chunk limit of the short-term memory. Um, For example, a long word consists of many letters, which in turn form numerous phonemes. So instead of only being able to remember a seven-letter word, the mind like recodes it, chunking the individual items of data together. And this process allows us to boost the limits of recollection to a list of seven separate words. So basically, Miller's theory of the limits of human memory applies both to the short-term store in the multi-store model and to Badley and Hitch's working memory. Um, So it works on the levels of all the theories that I've described so far. We need to consistently rehearse information um, in order to memorize data for longer than a short period of time. The fifth theory is memory decay, and this is by Peterson and Peterson in 1959. Well, wow, unique. Yeah, a little PMP action. Uh, <laughs> <Pee-pee>. <laughs> this theory followed Miller's magic number theory. Uh, PMP wanted to measure memory's longevity. How long will a memory last without being rehearsed before it's completely forgotten? Um, so in an experiment, they gave participants a list of trigrams to remember, which are like meaningless meaningless lists of three letter- letters, like GRT, PXM, A. Z-Y, you know, just meaningless three-letter collections. And after the participants saw the trigrams, participants were asked to count down from a number and to recall the trigrams at various periods after remembering them.
1: This is like one of the tests that they did on me with my ADHD testing. Yeah, they give you, like, meaningless
0: words, and then they tell you to count down backwards from... And, like, recall them? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, Well, the reason that they used trigrams in this experiment was to make it impractical for participants to assign meaning to the data to help encode them. Yeah, to to memorize them more easily. And the counting down created interference in rehearsing the trigrams. So this enabled researchers to measure the duration of short-term memory more accurately, and all participants were initially able to recall their the trigrams, but after 18 seconds, recall accuracy fell to around just about 10%. So this study demonstrated the surprising brevity of memories in the short-term store before they begin to decay and are unable to recall them. Um, so like basically everyone mom taylor everyone it might not be that i wasn't listening to you it could just be that you're speaking
1: in trigrams well
0: or that like there's you got 18 seconds before i won't remember exactly what you said anymore
1: (laughs) every time somebody talks to me now i'll be
0: like okay 18 seconds go (laughs) (laughs) Um, linda doesn't like to pay attention (laughs) linda's got 18 seconds okay um and it, this also made me wonder, like, I don't think that this is the case, but I just like occurred to me. So I thought I would mention it to you. Do you think that's why you sometimes walk into a room and forget that why yes. you were there? Yes, yes. Yes. That you have 18 seconds. Yes. And like, if it's just something quick and small, like it's not there when you get there 18 seconds later.
1: Yes. Yeah. It happens to me all the time. Like, yeah. If you go back to where you thought of it, sometimes that helps. Yes. Yeah. I've,
0: I've attempted that. Or sometimes I'm like, clearly it wasn't that important. I'm going to move on with my life.
1: Or I just like stand in the room, like circling. <laughs> I'm like, what was it? What was it? What was it? Why am I here? Maybe I'll just do
0: something new instead.
1: (laughs) So many times when we're recording a podcast, I'll be like, or we're recording our podcast. Yeah,
0: you do that. Talking. I'm like, nope. Where, where did I come from? How did I I get here? here? What, what am I doing here? I am a goldfish. (laughs) Anyway, um, the next theory is called Flashbulb Memories. And this is by Brown and Kulik in 1977. Eyewitness testimonies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there are moments that we, um, that people seem to hold like really vivid memories of, um, like Marta and I, I'm sure for Marta, I am assuming this of you. Otherwise, the flashbulb memory theory might be bunk. But um, you and I and probably all of our listeners can likely recall an event from our past that we have an unusually detailed memory of. And the best example I could think of is 9-11. Like a lot of people have a very vivid memory of where they were, who they were with, what they were doing, like all the details that go along with what happened when they heard about 9-11. And um, Brown and Kulik recognized this memory phenomenon as early as 1977, and they published a paper describing it as a flashbulb memory. It's like a vivid and highly detailed snapshot created often, but not necessarily in times of shock or trauma. And they also said that we do not need to be personally connected to the event for it to affect us or for it to lead to the creation of a flashbulb memory. Huh. Yeah. So that, that was that theory. Now I want to talk about memory and smell. Um, so we talked about the link to memory and smell at length during the smell episode we did a while back. Um, the link between memory and smell is actually Uh, an evolutionary advantage, like the ability to remember and later recognize a smell helps animals detect the nearby presence of members of the same group, potential prey or predators. Um, But how does that maybe manifest in modern day humans? I don't know, tell me. I'm going to. So in a 1989 experiment, researchers at the University of North Carolina tested the olfactory effects on memory, encoding and retrieval. Um, They had a male college student look at a series of slides of pictures of females whose attractiveness they were asked to rate on a scale. Oh, and you mean like everyday society? Yep. Um, that's what I thought too. <laughs> While viewing the slides, the participants were exposed to pleasant odors of aftershave or an unpleasant smell. And the recollection of the faces in the slides was later tested in an environment containing either the same or a different scent. And the results showed that participants were better able to recall memories when the scent at the time of encoding Match the scent at the time of recall, huh. and these findings suggested that a link between our sense of smell and memories remains, even if it provides less of a survival advantage than it did for our primitive ancestors. Huh. And and I thought of another example of this. I don't know if you were ever told this um, growing up, but I had a teacher who told me like if you're studying for a big test, you should chew mint gum. And I like thought it was kind of hokey and it was just sort of like maybe again, uh, give me something to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I read this and I was like, yo, maybe if I was chewing mint gum when I was studying and then I chewed the same gum when, when I was taking the, taking the test, maybe that would actually have some weight to it. Probably. Yeah. Um, so listeners, give it a go. At the very least, you'll have fresh breath. Um, Now my next theory I want to share is called interference and this theory suggests that we forget memories due to other memories interfering with our recall. Interference can be either retroactive or proactive. Um, Retroactive would mean like new information can interfere with older information and proactive means information we already know can affect our ability to memorize new information. Both types of interference are more likely to occur when two memories are semantically related. And this was demonstrated in a 1960 experiment by Underwood and Postman, in which two groups of participants were given a list of word pairs to remember so that they could recall the second response word when they were given the first as a stimulus. And a second group was also given a list to learn, but afterwards they were asked to memorize another list of word pairs. When both groups were asked to recall the words from the first list, those who had just learned that first list were able to recall more words than the group that had to learn a second list. Hmm. Um, So this supported the concept of retroactive interference, that the second list impacted the memories of words from the first list. Um, Interference also works in the opposite direction. Existing memories sometimes inhibit our ability to memorize new information. And this might occur when you receive, for example, a work schedule. If you're given a new schedule a few months later, like you have a, a set work schedule and then a few months later you get a new one, you might find yourself adhering to the original times because that schedule you already knew interferes with your memory of the new schedule.
1: And this might also be tied to like our biases. So we're more likely to pay attention to things that align with what we already know and like. Yeah. Um, And then you mentioning that interference theory just reminded me of um, something that's not entirely related to what you're talking about. But like with my episodic and semantic memory, there's this thing that I learned um, that you don't remember where you learned a fact or how you learned it, you just remember the fact itself. Mm. And it's actually very true. Like I have no idea when I learned like that dogs look like dogs and they're called dogs. You know what I mean? And I don't remember like when I learned how to use a computer or anything like that. Like I don't remember when I got certain knowledge. I remember the episodes
0: I well, feel like if I learned it in school, I kind of remember it, but not specifically. Like, I'll remember the grade I learned something, or I'll remember the course I was in, but maybe not necessarily the year I of stu- study that I learned it.
1: Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing is, like, just further evidence that episodic memory and semantic memory are separate so episodic memory is the kind that's usually autobiographical like you remember scenes or whatever and then semantic memory is like just for like general knowledge yeah so wow that's um and then when you told me when you were saying that one thing blocks another thing that's kind of like you remember facts but you don't remember whether or not they're true sometimes so if you have a fact air quotes in your brain already and then you learn it like the actual true version you could block yourself Mm -hmm. because you don't remember the episode in which you learned it do you know what I
0: mean yeah I do that's cool um okay I think I've got like two or three more um theories to go through false memories so evidence suggests that memories that we Already hold can be manipulated long after their encoding, and Marta has already talked about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, we can even be coerced into believing invented accounts of events to be true, um, creating false memories that we then accept as as real. Um, cognitive psychologist Elizabeth Loftus researched the abil- the reliability of our memories, um, particularly in circumstances when their accuracy has wider consequences, like eyewitness testimonials in criminal trials. Yep, yeah, boy. So. Um, Uh, She found that the phrasing of questions used to extract amounts of uh, accounts of of events can lead witnesses to attest to events inaccurately. Yes, 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 yes. In a 1974 (laughs) experiment, experiment, she showed a group of participants a video of a car collision where the vehicle was traveling at one of a variety of speeds. She then asked them to the car's speed using a sentence whose depiction of the crash was adjusted from mild to severe using different verbs. Yes. And like she it was a smash. Yeah. And she found that when the question suggested that the car had the car crash had been severe participants disregarded the video observation and they vouched that the car had been traveling faster than if the crash had been more of a gentle bump. So the use of framed questions can retroactively interfere with existing memories of events in 1997, James Cone demonstrated that false memories can even be produced of entire events. So he produced booklets detailing various childhood events and gave them to family members to read. Um, the booklet that he gave to his brother contained a fake account of him being lost in a shopping ball, being found by an older man, and then finding his family. And when asked to recall the events, Cone's brother believed the lost in the mall story to have actually occurred, and even embellished the account with his own details.
1: Yes, and I learned about this all also in school And we learned about it In two Two separate occasions So we learned about it In like a, my cognitive Psych class With like memory Specifically And how Your memory can be modified And we also learned about it In forensic psych Oh Yeah Because like you need to Your memories can be extremely unreliable people witnesses can be led down a path Mm -hmm. to answer a certain way and there's also this like it's an emergence emerging area of study even still because your study that you just cited was 1997 Mm -hmm. so that's like not super long ago which is frustrating 1997 right yeah um there's this other thing that they're doing now and i think it was like the because investigators are told, not investigators, interrogators are like trained really specifically to like interrogate in a cer- certain way, only ask certain questions in a certain way, whatever. But even still, even when they're like as rigorous as possible in trying not to like allow external inflection, they still lead witnesses mm-hmm. down a path. So they did a similar study where witnesses watched a video and then they were questioned about the video. They were asked, they were questioned by interrogators like humans mm-hmm. and then they were or they were in a different condition they were questioned by a computer program like ai responsive computer program and the voice remained very neutral it had a, like a very neutral face and whatever so Whoa. it was a, kind of like a little robot asking them questions on a computer and people's recollection they tended to um like be more accurate accurate from the robot That's crazy. Because for example, like in an interrogation, when you're talking to a person, like if I were to be asking you questions and then I knew there was more information and I waited for more information, then you might be more tempted to make up the information because of like social pressures or whatever, or like you might like fabricate something versus when you're talking to a computer, there's
0: no, none of that social pressure. That's crazy. Can I tell you about another theory that affects witness testimony? Yes. It's called the weapon effect on eyewitness testimony. Segue, I know, by the way, and it's called Johnson. It's by Johnson and Scott, and this was in 1976, so it has actually been studied for longer. longer. But, um, but yeah, that that one I just mentioned was 97. But this one is from the 70s. So, a person's ability to memorize an event inevitably depends not just on rehearsal, but also on the attention paid to it at the time the event occurred.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, like the one when I talked about how good your senses are yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah. um as an example, if you were to witness a mugging while you were walking down the street on your way to work, you probably have other things going on in your head than just memorizing the appearance of the mugger. Um, but in addition to this, there's a phenomenon called the weapon effect. And this is basically that a witness's ability yes, 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 yes. to produce testimony bells. can be affected by whether or not a gun was involved. Yes. yeah, Yes. I learned about this too. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. So when a witness is involved in a situation in which a weapon is present, they have been found to remember details less accurately mm-hmm. than a similar situation without a weapon so in a 1976 experiment by johnson and scott participants situated in a waiting room watched as a man left a room carrying a pen in one hand and another group of participants heard an aggressive argument and then saw a man leave a room carrying a bloodstained knife And later, when asked to identify the man in a lineup, participants who saw the man carrying a weapon were less able to identify him than those who had seen him carrying a pen. And witnesses' focus of attention had been distracted by the weapon, basically, and that impedes their ability to remember other details of the event. Which is crazy because
1: eyewitness testimony is usually about things involving a weapon. Yeah. Oh, hey, yeah. Yeah. So you just can't even really rely on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild.
0: Um, so those are the theories of memories I had to share with you. Yeah. And then
1: again, as we mentioned, as we're going through the episode, like today was, even though it's a long episode, like we're going over an hour for sure. Yeah. Um, this was still only like the tip of the iceberg. So for example, there's this podcast I listen to. It's called the brain science, brain science podcast with Ginger Campbell. Um, and she's a neuroscientist and she interviews neuroscientists about books that they've released and stuff like that. And it's like, by far the nerdiest thing in my RSS feed and I fucking love it but there's this one researcher that she interviewed and he was talking about how like so yes there's the theories of memory and the theories of how like memory works and we can recall it but there's also a whole other area of research about how memory works in our brains and what parts of our brains are being used and like how we recall like how those associations are formed is everything connected in like a web or is it linear or like are these things actually living together or they fall far apart like that sort of research is a whole other thing that's really interesting and he was talking about how the theory that we've been hinging all of our hypotheses on until recently is wrong Yeah, and, like, in our idea of how we store memories and how we recall them and what part of the brain is used, like, it's actually, it's possible that every part of the brain is involved in memory and it's not just, like, a memory center. Hmm. So it's, I don't know, I wasn't able to find that episode again before today in order to listen to it, but it's probably for the best because this episode's already super long. So if you guys are interested at all in, like, the neuroscience of memory, because today we are talking about more about, like, behavioral aspects of it but if you're interested in like the neuroscience and like how electrical impulses like fire in your brain to actually make the human experience of memory happen then again let us know yeah because any
0: questions or like i wish i wish you'd told us more about this or something like that yeah let us know
1: yeah we it's it's fascinating and again we both felt like we couldn't like there was so much more that we didn't
0: cover yeah well and also like I think both of us were really interested in the topic of memory as like something to discuss on the podcast. So I, I feel like we will do more episodes, like kind of whether listeners ask us to or not. Like I know I definitely want to do an Alzheimer's episode. Oh, for sure, and like focus on on that completely to itself so and you guys um, also
1: seem to like our illness
0: episodes yeah so like i feel like we will come we will circle back to the topic of memory so if you guys have specific things that you want us to include when we do so yeah yeah. um yeah we want to like if you're wondering We want to find out the answer for you. Yes. (laughs)
1: Um, And that's about everything for today, guys. Thank you for listening to Who Knew We Didn't. We will be back again in two weeks because we, if you you remember a few weeks back, we announced that we're doing a weekly
0: episode instead of weekly episodes. Yeah. So we just for the summer, at least. Yeah. We
1: release to you as often as your employer pays you. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Unless they pay you weekly, in which case we don't. <laughs> this is, sorry. Anyway, yeah, we, uh, we're on a longer release schedule now. Especially for the summer, we might go back to normal. But we hope you guys tune in in two weeks when we are hopefully going to be talking about autism. We're trying to coordinate that uh, recording and we're very excited for it because we have a professional coming on. Uh, But the format might be a little bit different because he has some different ideas in mind for our format. Well, and also
0: we've never done like an interview uh, of of a professional before. So that'll mix it up a little bit.
1: Yeah, the only interview we've had was of some chick that has ADHD.
0: (laughs) And she's on the podcast every week, so I'm not sure it really counts as an interview.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and then yeah, so that's everything for today. Thank you guys again for listening. We are who knew we didn't everywhere on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, you name it, we've got it. We're on Patreon as well, and we have an email. Who knew we didn't at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Don't forget. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>